Hi, Right Brainers, Larry Anderson here. I'm very excited, no, super excited to bring you this next interview that I did with Adam G. Adam G is a commissioning editor who was uh, who currently works for the Red Bull Media House, formerly of Little Dot Studios, but also he has worked for Channel 4, where he was the commissioning editor who brought us the multi-award-winning, multi-platform program, Embarrassing Bodies. So I think that you will really find this conversation extremely interesting, really enthralling. We talk about all sorts of things like him meeting the people from The Wire at the award ceremonies. Oh, and talking of awards, Adam G has won five BAFTAs. Yes, people, five BAFTAs. So I really hope that you will find this a wide ranging, interesting piece of content and that hopefully will inspire you towards your creative goals. So without any further ado, I bring you Adam G. And that, that was BAFTAs two, three, and four was all embarrassing bodies of one sort or another because we just really pushed it as far as we could. Um, well, in one particularly kind of satisfying year, it beat the Olympic Games coverage on BBC. Which was just, <laughs> <laughs> that was a very yeah. good night. <laughs> but it was. Great. Uh, so, Adam G, welcome to Right Brain Stories. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having so, me. No problem. Um, so, you know, as, as mentioned, uh, the whole point of this podcast or video is to really try and inspire people who uh, who want to make the next creative step, who may be afraid to do that, uh, maybe against opposition from friends and family, or uh, or even just to turn what they do to express themselves into uh, a professional practice, uh, maybe get an agent or something like that. So, um, so th 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 I'm sure that uh, you're the right person yeah. to uh, inspire them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so Adam, do you want to just explain to um, our listeners and uh, and viewers who you are and uh, and what you do, please? Sure. So, um, I work as a commissioning editor. Um, most of my career I've spent at Channel 4, 13 years there. Then I've um, spent a couple of years recently at uh, Little Dot Studios, which is based in London and has outposts in LA and, um, and Berlin. Um, and then latterly I've just moved to Red Bull Media House, which is a um, business based in Salzburg, but with offices in Covent Garden. That's where I work. So, commissioning editor, what does it mean? In terms of TV, um, it means a person that um, orders projects, uh, film, TV projects or film projects, from independent production companies and other suppliers, um, has to decide which are the things worth backing and has uh, money to back them with. So that's the essence of it. It's a kind of, it's a weird term because it's taken from publishing, but it's applied to television, particularly since the advent of Channel 4. Fantastic, and uh, uh, I've noticed you've been particularly successful at doing this, and um, I know you're a humble person, but uh, um, I, I noticed the other day that you've, um, I think you've won your fifth BAFTA, and uh, so congratulations for that. Thank you very much. Yeah. That was um, 
a few weeks ago and it was mm. it was kind of a kick because it was a sort of it was a long shot it was a, a film that had been made entirely on an iphone 10 and it was up against great behemoths from bbc big scripted dramas and um so yeah it was a long shot but it kind of came through so it was super super exciting that's missed missed call correct is that the, that's it's the, called missed call it's directed by um someone called victoria mapplebeck and you can find it online on youtube um in on the real stories channel just spent a spell spelt in the normal way real stories um so it's real stories miss cool you'll find it fantastic well, <laughs> <laughs> well, i mean you know i mean it's an interesting kind of um contrast between you know filming something on an iphone 10 uh, which is also yeah. very encouraging for our audience but also being up against and winning an award against um big budget uh, behemoths as you say what, what do you think was what do you think made the difference it was um, creatively distinctive and it was original. And I guess it was kind of emblematic of the future as well. So on all those levels, it kind of stood out. So although I thought it was a long shot, I did think we had a fighting chance, um, but nonetheless, it was like an amazing surprise on the night. That's fantastic. And, and so, I, um, I, 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 you know how in your um, diary, it goes like, um, Monday through Sunday, and then you kind of flip over to the next page. So the Bathers were on Sunday night. Um, I kind of obviously didn't flip over the page at the right um, moment because on the Monday I booked myself in to do a talk at a um, film school at Ravensbourne in Greenwich. Oh, yeah. Um, at 11 o'clock the next morning, uh, which was kind of a tactical error, whatever way you look at it. But I thought, <laughs> I'm not going to let these people down. So um, I did go down to Greenwich uh, on the Monday morning, but I hadn't had any sleep whatsoever. I was going to say, was that the, the, the hangover cure? It was a quite an interesting lecture because I had to open it by saying there's good news and there's bad news. <laughs> bad news is I'm still drunk from last night. <laughs> and the good news is um, this is why. And I took the said gong from a plastic bag because I was going to drop it off to the um, office straight afterwards. <laughs> yes uh, I, i'm starting to get your sense of irony um but uh, yeah it's um that's fantastic and and i'm sure that the uh, the students would have appreciated your honesty actually um having had a son that's just finished art school so uh, yeah um it's well, they, they did actually they got a good lecture actually because you know when you're chilled and and you're kind of in good form it all helps yeah, yeah. Good oh, that's fantastic yeah. Yeah. So, 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 where did it all start, Adam? How did you end up at this point where you where you were commissioning editor, and how did what was the inception for you? I think I might. Should I go all the way back? Because I know you've got some younger viewers, so yeah. I might go back all the way. So, I guess I got interested in films and movies when I was a teenager. Um, I don't know, there was just a certain point where suddenly I was thinking, oh, this isn't really kind of a casual interest, I'm proper interested in this. Mm. Um, I went to school and I did English and um, languages for my A-levels. And then I went on to uh, do modern languages at university. Might seem irrelevant, but actually I used the stuff that I learned doing those things, which were basically foreign literature more than anything else. I use the skills from that every day as a commissioning editor because it's all about analysis and evaluation of, of texts and films and documents. 
Um, so, you know, very much the same skills. But if you asked a careers teacher back then, you know, to make this link between modern languages and doing your Baudelaire and doing your um, Camus or whatever it is, and then, you know, doing this job, they probably wouldn't have made the link, but it's a very kind of direct one. I literally use those skills every day. So um, from there, so I went to university, had loads of holidays, um, still realised I was interested in kind of moving pictures, but not in a focused way like some people. There were some um, peers that I had at uni that were absolutely knew they wanted to do telly, watched everything for three years that was on telly, were very single-minded. I wasn't like that. I left uni and all I'd figured out was... I want to either work with moving pictures or still ones. Just <laughs> that's about as far as I got in terms of working anything out. Um, but um, I did qu quite a lot of. I, 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 what I did was I did running jobs in my holidays. I had twenty-five weeks a year holiday. Um, I by chance went to, because I was interested in movies. I went to a, um, a talk about Hitchcock and the Birds, um, the movie, mm. and. Um, the the guy that was giving the talk was a uh, was a scriptwriter called David Radkin and he had a friend along um, called Simon Mellor who ran an indie in London and I got talking to Simon after the um, after the speech and all the yeah the lecture or whatever mm. and then I um, I ended up getting in touch with him to see if I could get a job as a runner at his production company in Farringdon which I did get, um, and that was what I did in most of the university holidays. So when I came to apply for jobs straight after university, I think they were much more interested in the fact that I'd shown some commitment and got some practical experience, um, rather than the fact I had a degree, you know, mm. that's kind of how it was. So um, useful to, to show some sort of commitment in that way. Mm. Um, the first job I got was at an um, kind of an independent production company or the 70s version. Not that this was in the 70s, but it was a hangover from the 70s. It was like a film co-op. Um, I did two years there. It was, it was my apprenticeship. But I didn't really realise till I left how much I'd learnt. I sort of, you know, just walked away thinking... Yeah, it was okay, but um, I don't know, it progressed me very much. But then I realised I had quite a big network and I had picked up certain kind of really important principles that I've used ever since. Also, it turned out to be a really interesting company because the, the newest partner there was a certain Roger Deakins who's just picked up his first Oscar for, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, bloody hell, what's that film called? Um, I think Bob 2045, what's it called? Blade Runner, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Oh, okay. Yeah, that little one, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he went on to have a super interesting career. He's got a zillion BAFTAs and a lot of Oscar nominations. Obviously, he's very kind of um, respected in his field. And um, But he was just kind of starting out at the time. So you never really kind of know who's who, who's on the up, who's on the down. Bottom line, try and just treat everyone um, with some kind of... Uh, respect, openness, generosity, kindness, and uh, that's probably the best best way to go because you just don't know um, who's going where and when, mm. including yourself. Yeah. So that was good. Um, I um, then went to a production, an independent production company that was uh, set up by a Panorama producer 
Um, he became kind of mental for me, even though that was before me and lots of other people knew the word mental, really. It wasn't such a current type of concept, but he was very um, good and basically gave me a lot of autonomy. So relatively early on, I moved from researching to writing to directing. Um, and um, that worked out pretty good um, cause that, because I got to make quite a, a lot of films there and to sort of uh, spread my wings a bit. Uh, then the company got bought and everyone got made redundant at the same time. Uh, so once again, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is we all got made redundant. The good news is I was in the middle of making my first game and I hadn't finished it and they hadn't bothered to really assess the situation. So they had to come to me and say, oh yeah, but you will finish that game, won't you? So I was like, yeah, of course I will for, for a little percentage. Um, and actually that, that game ended up winning the very first interactive BAFTA. I wrote it with a guy, uh, with two guys, a very talented interactive writer called Tim Wright, who I still work with, and um, Ben Miller, who's the you know the actor, the sidekick in um, the um, Johnny English films. Ah, oh, right, yes, 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 yes. Um, very funny writer, was really guy, yeah. enjoyable to work with. Mm. Um, and that one, yeah, the comedy, the one and only ever interactive comedy BAFTA. Um, and it was a film about creative thinking, which is a, um, an idea, a sort of a territory, really, that I've been very interested in and continue to be interested in. Um, so where does that get us to? Oh, yeah, Made Redundant, Freelance. Yep. So actually, yes, for um, maybe quite a lot of your viewers that are teetering on the edge of, of kind of committing themselves to creative career, uh, a lot of them are freelance based. Mm. Um, I was actually just talking to my wife yesterday about a mentee that I had a couple of years ago from Ravensbourne and um, that was a very quick uh, mentoring process in a way because um, the the real thing all she needed was to um, recognize that TV is basically a kind of freelance industry and she just had to have the self-belief because she was plenty talented um, even though she had quite a sort of difficult background but she was plenty talented and it was obvious she just had to have the self-belief to um to uh, just um enter this uh foray of of freelance and just um go for it and it worked out really well for her but it was just like that that's all she needed one little, one little kind of nudge and yeah kind of realization and then she was off so uh that was important um uh, then what happens? Yes. Well, so I've, I've worked for various indies and then like lots of um, commissioning editors that they're, they're all poachers turned gamekeepers or we are. Um, so, you know, I went from being an indie producer to being um, a commissioning editor at Channel 4. That was around 2003. Um, so, yeah, that was that was um, that was a good sort of change. Um, it was an organisation whose values and whose output I really respected. So that made it much easier. I'm, I'm much more of sort of Channel Four kind of geezer than a than a BBC One. Yeah. So all of that's really sort of suited me. So it feels like you were at Channel Four, not saying they're in the past, but in their heyday, really of of, of new. I was new there ideas. in a very good period in yeah. lots of ways because uh, there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, when I arrived, Mark Thompson was still there, who was just about to go off to be Director General of the BBC. Mm. He just commissioned 
a big project to help Channel 4 get back in touch with its kind of, with its roots and with its values and with its kind of purpose and its, um, you know, just a real sense of why it had been put on earth, which they'd lost over the years. And so there was a very good um, project done and um, it presented back really what was the essence of Channel 4. So um, in its most concertinaed, concise form, it was, um, they, they came up with these three lines, which was um, do it first, make trouble, inspire change. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that really works. That totally captures Channel 4. It's very helpful. So on that level, it was, it was a, it was a refocused organization. Also, I uh, went there in the early days of multi-platform TV. So that's combining TV with web, mobile, real life. Um, and it was kind of a bit like the Wild West. So that was really kind of helpful because there was lots of latitude and room for manoeuvring and opportunities to um, test stuff out. Also, I had a great boss there, um, Heather Rabatz, who really came from a kind of political ah, yes. background from Lambeth Council and so forth before she went to Channel 4 Learning. And um, she was really a brilliant boss because she was sort of, she was kind of very much the politician, which I'm sure she still is. Um, and so she would never really go how much, she'd always go, just make sure it's sexy enough. And also we were very kind of complimentary because she wasn't too bothered about detail really. She was the bigger picture and the broad brushes. And I was kind of happy to supply like, how do you actually do it? <laughs> how do you make it happen? So, so, you know, that worked well together. So that was a very enjoyable period. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so, in that period um, came embarrassing bodies, and um, so that was a really groundbreaking. Um, it was, it was a really important um, uh, title and and project um, from my point of view because it it became the sort of poster boy for factual multi-platform. Like before, embarrassing bodies, people had seen. Big Brother and as and it's like yeah it works for reality TV but they didn't they weren't too convinced it worked for anything else and then we did Embarrassing Bodies in 2005 um, which was a kind of originally just an innocuous little three-part documentary series about health related to stuff below the waist basically <laughs> um, but it became something completely different and very kind of with a lot of public service value so at its peak our our website for example um had um 70 million um views a year um was a lot and it was the number one referrer to the nhs and it was also the number one rival to the nhs online um and that was really good because it meant um people who don't normally pay any attention to their health did like especially young men um so that that was great and then it became because it got that kind of scale it became a great um platform for experimentation which we did um, uh, you know, in lots of different ways. And that, that was BAFTAs 2, 3 and 4 was all embarrassing bodies of one sort or another because we just really pushed it as far as we could. Um, what In one particularly kind of satisfying year, it beat the Olympic Games coverage on BBC. Which was just, <laughs> <laughs> that was a very yeah. good night. <laughs> but it was. It was also, uh, it was the time when um, The Wire was very popular. So they were all there at, this, at, the, um, at the ceremony, at the party. Wow. Um, so, so that was kind of the kick meeting them all after. after. 
Wow, I, d- I did. I did think about actually the wire, um, and and as I was thinking about preparing for this interview and David Simon and, and other writers about you know what impact that sort of storytelling has on on creativity. Um, yeah. I, I'm certain that you would have thought about that, and as one of most sort of TV uh, or, or other writers, because it's, it's so compelling, but without the um, the big bang at the end, end of every episode. Yeah, I mean, it is beautifully written. I did meet him that night. I, I felt kind of a bit embarrassed about my kind of lack of knowledge about Baltimore and his kind of world. And um, But I had a good chat with him. He was very um, open and, um, and, and sort of up for it. I also met Bubbles, if you remember him. Oh, yeah. What an actor. He was amazing because he didn't really look like he did on the telly. <laughs> and, he, and he said to me, he said, um, okay, look, I'm in town for one day. Um, uh, you know, what would you do? And I said, well, you know, what are you kind of into? And he goes, um, uh, booze and broads. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, man? It's like, I'm a bit out of practice. <laughs> I'm a married man. <laughs> um but yeah, you know, beautifully written. And one of the things um, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and acting on in recent times is um, I've become very kind of obsessed with story structure. Mm. There was a guy at Channel 4, um, a fellow commissioning editor called John York, um, who was the head of drama and then went back to the BBC. Um, and he wrote a really interesting book, which is kind of synthesis of story structure theories. Uh, it's called Into the Woods. It's a really great book. Um, okay. I'm just reading it for the umpteenth uh, time at the moment because I, I always find it quite, quite inspiring. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so basically the, the kind of um, story structures, uh, notions of story structure that we're used to applying to TV dramas like The Wire and others um, and movies um, and so forth, um, I use them all the time in relation to documentaries. So I'm always looking to make sure that the documentaries that I work on uh, uh, work as stories, because especially, you know, I do a lot of short form factual stuff and there's kind of a default thing that happens with short form factual, which is kind of, um, it sort of defaults to these mini character portraits and they're sort of a bit, you know, they're kind of a bit uninspiring. They're not very ambitious. Sometimes they work, often they work. Sometimes they don't, but I don't like making them. Um, I like stuff that's driven by narrative, by action, by actuality. Um, so, yeah, I spend quite a lot of time thinking about how stories work and trying to make sure the ones that I'm working on function properly as narratives. It's um, interesting because uh, uh, you've just frozen. Yeah, so have you. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Uh, I wonder why. I, it might be because I, my line's probably a bit rubbish. Okay. Um, yeah, so interestingly, you, you, you teed up story structure very well because I've just recently been looking into it myself. So I don't know if you can see that. That is about the seven archetypes, archetypes and how they can dramatically improve your marketing. Um, you know, talking about overcoming the monster. It's about the Christopher Booker book. Uh, which, oh, yes. Yeah, it talks about the seven story archetypes. Yeah, um, it's over there behind me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's really interesting. And how do you how do you manage to squeeze that in? Because like you work on a lot of short form 
um, um, media as, as uh, creative as you, as you mentioned, how do you squeeze the structure in into the short form? And, and you know, also what, what is short form? What is the time limit and how do you squeeze it? Uh, how do you squeeze it in? I, I'm going to refer you to um, my learned colleague, uh, John York, again, because his kind of, um, his synthesized theory is kind of like a fractal theory so basically the structures are at every level of the story right down to individual scenes and so forth so um you can is the answer and uh, in terms of well short form there's not an official definition if you're the american academy of motion picture arts and sciences or whatever they're called then it's um, under 45 minutes um if you are instagram it's a number of seconds so um, I kind of think of short form as somewhere in the vicinity of four to five minutes. Right. Um, but there's no official definition. And um, when I'm commissioning, I always just, uh, well, certainly when I was, yeah, at Channel 4, I'd always give four to five minutes as a sort of default length and then just ask um, directors or producers to um, move the dial deliberately if they wanted to go longer or shorter and just to be able to say why. The, the short form that I'm making at the moment is slightly longer than that. It's kind of five to eight minutes. Mm. And the stuff that I was doing at Little Dot is more in the vicinity of 15 to 20 minutes. So I think of that as mid-form. Right. But there aren't really official definitions of these things. And, and so do you, does that then mean that your output as a commissioning editor is much more voluminous and, um, and therefore also your, your, having to multitask a lot because you've got lots of things on your your current slate. Is that how it works? Or? Um, yes, it can be. Like there was a, um, in when I was working, setting up the um, short form service on all four, Channel 4's um, on-demand platform, first year I did that, I made 220 um, short form episodes. Uh, my, you know, that, that was my output mm. that year. That was a lot. It was kind of... It was it was it was fun, but it was kind of exhausted. I was exhausted by the end of it for obvious reasons. But um, so yeah, you know that that can be the case. But um, this year, for example, at Red Bull, I'm commissioning ten short form films and, and one other drama, so <clears throat> much more kind of manageable. Right, right, and and because things are much more multi-platform these days, um, and necessarily so. Do you have different ways of measuring success now? And, and has that evolved um, over the past few years? Well, I mean, it has evolved. I mean, it's different. It's a different answer depending on whether we're talking about multi-platform TV or online video. Um, since online video is what I've been doing predominantly for the last, um, you know, more than five years. Um, I'll answer that one. Um, so, yes, it has evolved because, first of all, there's an enormous amount of smoke and mirrors AKA bullshit around um, metrics to do with online video. Mm. Most of this stuff you see, especially on Facebook, it's kind of just bollocks, really. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not really a technical term, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas, um, what you really need, you need to kind of look carefully at, at um, what the kind of key measurements are. So, in terms of uh, actual kind of traffic and volume, you really want to be looking at completed video views because otherwise what counts as a video view is like a few seconds, it's nonsense. Um, it's kind of a conspiracy of silence really because it, it sort of benefits everyone apart from advertisers to um, 
exaggerate these numbers. Um, then, um, but but then what what's um, become much more important is basically metrics around engagement. So that can be everything from thumbs up, um, you know, liking stuff to um, in particular sort of commenting and um, and 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 sharing. You know, all, all very important metrics. So when you're getting your kind of cash back from the likes of um, Facebook and YouTube, a lot of it's based on that kind of activity. That's what they value. Mm. And, and do people who come to you with commissions or have they over the past few years have a, an acute understanding of these things or do, do they typically rely on you to kind of shape the, um, help to shape the story in a modern way and also to shape um, how, what things are going to be measurable. Um, um, I do input quite a lot into those things, particularly, um, because if you've ever looked at the stats on any video platform you care to mention, you lose most of your audience in the first minute. Correct. So you, you have to construct things in a way that absolutely kind of minimizes that. And so I, you know, that's one of the things I've really focused on over the last few years about how to absolutely, um, arrest that kind of drop off so you, you have to approach the openings of the films in particular in, in a particular sort of way to encourage people to stick with it and see it through to the end um, so I put a lot of time and effort into that and it does make a difference you can sort of see in the stats um, so and it's different from telly which is kind of interesting because it sometimes means that young and inexperienced filmmakers um, are as good, if not better, um, than old veteran ones with a lot of baggage at making this kind of stuff because a lot of it goes against everything you've learnt and every, everything, all your instincts that you've developed over the years. A lot of it's completely backwards and the opposite. Mm. So, so I would imagine that our viewers and listeners now are probably thinking, so, so what is that, Adam? What is that? What is that secret sauce that allows you to keep people engaged beyond the first minute? Um, um, I'm sure it depends. Uh, but. I mean, it's, it's an exercise in, in sort of um, attracting and retaining attention. Um, and there are a lot of different ways you can do it. And that's not, that does not equal clickbait because, you know, clickbait by definition is you don't really deliver on the thing that you propose and offer. Mm. Um, so it's not that, but uh, there are lots of different ways to do it. But you do have to kind of get going quickly and you have to make it clear to the person that the thing that they've clicked on is uh, what they thought they were getting um, in some shape or form and, um, and, and that there's something in it for them. So that's what you've got to get across very quickly. And you're talking about in a number of seconds. It's not a number of minutes, it's a number of seconds. Wow. But then that's the same as a lot of um, online media, you know, for, with websites and stuff, you know, a decent website, you should know whether there's something in it for you within a few seconds of landing there. You should be absolutely clear what it's for. And you should also be able to tell whether it's what you want and what you need. Um, but that there are plenty of websites that don't really fulfill on that front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of your... In terms of your strengths, um, you know, knowledge, skills, um, experience, what, what would you say, you know, what did Red Bull buy, for instance? Um, well, that one's quite a, um, what Red Bull, Red Bull bought was quite specific, which was about diversity, really. 
um, they looked at the films that I'd done at uh, Real Stories and they could see that more than half the directors were female. Uh, amongst those, they range from like ex-cons to uh, women returners and all things in between. Uh, quite a lot of the companies, the indies that I was working with were BAME-owned companies like disproportionately, a bit disproportionately. Mm. Uh, terrible term that, but I don't think that, I think that's what everyone still uses. Yeah. Um, and um, and the films were all the richer for having that kind of diversity of talent and, and particularly not the usual suspects. That's been a bit of a kind of theme through my career. I didn't really realise um, until I left Channel 4 and my kind of... Um, my, my um, leaving do sort of speech that my boss there did really kind of focused that. I hadn't really thought of the way I worked um, in the terms that he put it, but he basically said, you know, I was someone that lived the um, diversity ambitions and principles of Channel 4 that I didn't need, the, the, you know, the sheets and the check boxes and all that stuff. And... Uh, I think that's kind of true. I, it wasn't something I very consciously went out to do, but that's where I've always kind of got a kick. So I'm really um, super happy doing this job at Red Bull at the moment um, because it's all about helping really talented, emerging talent. Um, um, sort of, you know, people you can really already see that they can definitely do it, but just giving them that next kind of... Um, uh, Go, you know, going up one more gear sort of thing and just getting them that, that, that bit more secure in what they're doing. Mm. So I just get a real kick from working with kind of not the usual suspects, super talented people who kind of, you can see they can do it and maybe this is an opportunity for them to to deploy their skills in a way that they haven't yet had the, the sort of latitude and freedom to do. And, and, and did that... Did that start a while ago, the, 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 the evolution to becoming um, um, a Channel I, people? I mean, Channel 4's values was definitely kind of an important part of that. Like, um, it was a sensibility that I definitely kind of honed at Channel 4 um, to, the, to the degree where, you know, you'd look at, I don't know, print collateral for something or a proposal or the staff of a company online or whatever and you just immediately can see uh you know just wax you in the face if there isn't much by way of diversity there um <clears throat> so i kind of yeah i it, it was sort of really honed there and i also noticed that it, you know it was different from a, a lot of other people that i was working with um in other organizations it wasn't quite such a sort of an imperative or so much emphasis on it mm. um which is why, um, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's fine to have middle-class, middle-aged white blokes doing stuff alongside everyone else. You know, I don't think it should all be done by, by um, silver foxes like myself. But um, the, the reality is, you can not only can you sort of um, commission a diversity of content, but you can also commission for young people um, by virtue of having some of your own young people close at hand. Uh, plus your experience so you can take the sort of vice route and, and get like 20 year olds to make the films because they're in touch with what 20 year olds like but there's a sort of another approach was you get people that live with 20 year olds to make the films 
they know what's going on, and they also um, have quite a, a you know depth of experience as well. But you know, there's room for both. I don't really advocate one or the other. No, it, it's interesting. I, I do watch a fair amount of Vice videos. They're really good. There's some really good stuff on there that really engages me all the way to the end, which is not normal because I've got a very short attention span. You know, uh, but uh, and um, so in when you're when you're in terms of commissioning um what's and and the life span of a project what's generally the most challenging aspect of that from cradle to grave um most challenging aspect i mean the, the what's what you're looking for ideally is to have a kind of creative conversation between the commissioner and the creatives, the director or whoever, whereby what you end up with is more than the sum of parts, uh, or that the two heads are better than one. Um, and that's what it's like at its best. Now, sometimes, it, it, ideally, you want a little bit of grit in that oyster, really. So it's better when there's some kind of tension um, between those two poles because you don't want people, you know, if you throw out a creative idea, you don't want them to sort of go, yes, sir, that's a great idea, I will do that. You want them to kind of think about it and see whether it matches what they want to do. And if they don't like it, then they kind of push back and then you, you know, you work towards some sort of resolution. That's, that's kind of the ideal process. It's, it's really interesting you say that, Adam, because um, there's a podcast by Reed Hoffman, um, the guy, one of the guys who started LinkedIn, and he is called. It's called Masters of Scale. And one of the things he said in that was, um, when people are pitching to him, sometimes it's not good when everybody on the committee says yes. It's sometimes yeah. good when you've got a bit of a split decision and there's a bit yeah. of tension in the room. He said quite often those are the those uh, are the best people to back um, or the yeah. best ideas to back. Um, so uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that. Yeah, I met him once in the speakers. I God knows what I was doing now. I was in the speakers room at the um, Houses of Parliament, and he was there. Really? Um, yeah, it was a, sort of one of those vaguely kind of surreal situations. I mean, that's one of the great things about the um, uh, the job. You do you do kind of find yourself in some interesting sort of places within some interesting people. Like just, I mean, this week I uh, went to a viewing a Netflix documentary viewing which was at the Science Museum, and I found myself having a wee right next to the <laughs> Chief Financial Officer of Cambridge Analytica. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> I found myself documentary. That's a documentary in itself. Yeah, yeah, I could get arrested for making a documentary <laughs> on my iPhone 10, couldn't I? Um, I bumped into a guy who I'd been at college with um, who uh, went on to work for MI6 and then produced the... Um, the sort of uh, notorious Trump Russia uh, dossier. Oh wow! Okay, uh, I haven't seen him since we left college. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, and it was kind of it was an interesting evening in, in all sorts of ways. You know, just sort of kind of just typified all those kind of things that make it, I guess, you know, kind of colourful and fulfilling career because you do cross paths with a lot of interesting people in a lot of interesting places mm, mm. Um, and, and you mentioned um uh i think we talked at some stage about um 
um, support systems and things like that. What, what uh, or maybe I just um, imagined it, but what, um, what role do you think in terms of creatives do their support systems play, you know, um, their families and, and, and people that they hold dear or their opinions that they hold closely? Um, it's very important. I mean, they're all different kinds of support systems. Um, uh, I mentioned mentoring before. Mm. I'm, I'm going to be start mentoring um, a guy from Birmingham on Monday, um, which is sort of the latest in a fairly kind of long line of doing that stuff. And I was just talking actually to my son the other day and just saying, you know, what a good sort of mentoring relationship is always a sort of two way thing. When it kind of feels one way, it doesn't really work. But even if there's a big age difference, big sort of experience difference, most people have got something to kind of bring to the table and to, you know, to make it something of an exchange. So I, I, I really enjoyed the mentoring that I've done over the years. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to starting this one on, on, on Monday. But I myself, you know, I have a mentor um, still. He's a sort of veteran documentary maker. He's a septuagenarian now. Wow. Um, and he's, he's great. You know, whenever we get together, he's always... Uh, you know, I used to worry about like, do I have to bring an agenda to the thing? But he always manages to kind of figure out what to, what what's the nub of the issue at the moment, and mm-hmm. has kind of, uh, some wisdom to bring to it. So, I'm an absolute kind of believer in that kind of setup. Which, you know, like I say, I think it's sort of something that's come become, you know, looks like a trend, but I, I think it's kind of one of those sensible trends <laughs> that you know, uh, is long overdue, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, there have been more informal ways of doing it over the years, but I think it's really good that people think about uh, finding themselves a mentor or being one to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, about, go on. Oh, no, I'm sorry, just thinking about support systems. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you do, you do need to kind of look after yourself in all sorts of ways when you're doing these sort of jobs, like doing 220 episodes of short form in a year wasn't that smart sort of thing um uh i mean it was kind of yeah it was a good year um but i also made sure that the next year was kind of quite radically different um because it was you know it was too much and it's not you know just what puts you out of balance really so trying to create some kind of balance in your life is super important um mm-hmm. you see a lot of people emailing in the middle of the night or um uh working weekends or going home like really late and i don't really um i don't really like any of that stuff and i think it's kind of best avoided really um you know you you shouldn't really ask people to do it and you shouldn't really do it yourself no there are times when um people do need to go a bit above and beyond the call of their contract or their of duty or whatever. But by and large, there's a lot of piss taking that goes on. Um, and you've got to try and kind of guard yourself as best you can, which is sort of, you know, it's not always easy, but. No, because I can imagine in a sort of, in, in a sort of creative um, arena that you can, you know, it's your dream. Somebody's um, living their dream and yeah. people can mess with that dream. You know, we won't go into, what's happened over the years but you know it can people can mess with your dream in so many different ways because yeah. you feel like you really want to do that and that's 
that's horrible isn't it yeah, you know? um, yeah. and you, i mean you can you can guard yourself to a certain degree uh, and you can certainly kind of be aware of where the pitfalls are um but you know i'm not pretending it's always easy to avoid these things and, and it goes on all the way through it's not just when you're young i mean i've got that situation at the moment mm. where i'm kind of working with a broadcaster i mean i've had it a couple of times in the last couple of years where working with a broadcaster and and you're just kind of um you could go on doing kind of free work for them ad infinitum if you're not careful so i'm very uh you know i try and be very clear at what point i you know expect some cash to appear mm. Or you know, otherwise I move on. Really, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I suppose. I mean, did, did you grow up around creative um, uh, family at all, or did you just to be able to see spot some of these things or understand? The- um, half. I had a um, a graphic designer mum and a scientist dad, so ah. uh, both useful because the sort of logical, rational, systematics been very important as well as the creative. But yeah, it was pretty good. You know, it was a good mix. Um, I, you know, I'm grateful to both of them for for their input to me. Um, so yeah, I guess I did, and uh, and and it was sort of encouraged just by, I mean, especially by my mum, just by taking us to places, art galleries, plays that we didn't really want to go and see until years later when we <laughs> lot for taking us to all those plays. They were actually amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Used to like we used to go down uh, early on Saturday mornings to the National Theatre and you could get these tickets for like a tenner. Yeah, and we were like, oh no, I can't you know want to stay in bed, want to do something a bit. But actually, you know, both me and my uh, my younger brother, you know, at a certain juncture, we turn around and say, actually, yeah, no, you, we appreciate it. That was good. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And um. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, I guess it, it does help if you've got any kind of encouragement around. Mm. Um, but I also think there's, there's quite a lot of goodwill. So even if you don't have something kind of close at home, if, you, if you've just got that little bit of kind of self-confidence to go looking for um, some support, it is out there. Mm. Mm. Like you mentioned about the mentoring, etc. Um, yeah, I mean, at the beginning of, um, when I was at Channel 4, I set up the Syncled Ideas Factory, which was a sort of personal development yeah. and yeah, um, corporate development. Um, uh, initiative by Channel 4 for Creative Industries. Mm. And, um, yeah, I worked there with a, you know, I remember with the manager of that project, James Estill, uh, and we also used to talk about, you know, there were certain people that would always find the support, the money, and we I think we called them the usual suspects. <laughs> um, and what we were focusing on was what we termed the able amblers. So there were people that had talent, but they didn't necessarily have the sort of, self-belief to realize it and they just needed a little bit of nudge and support to to get on in there so we went out looking for the able amblers and that's that's in 2003 so i guess um you know i'm kind of on the same mission still that's fantastic and and when you're either mentoring people or you've commissioned something um uh, and you're um helping them through the process are there particular myths about creativity or or perhaps filmmaking that sometimes creep into people's uh, mindsets and the way that or, or what you've observed you know um, no i don't think i've seen that really like most people are that i've worked with are pretty kind of assiduous and focused and they realize that it's hard work and they realize that they'll be kind of committed to what they're doing so i haven't really 
come across that. But I I, I did a um I do some uh, talks sometimes for this uh, Robert Peston's charity called Speakers for Schools, okay. which he's up to provide speakers for state schools that kind of match what you'd get at a private school. Um, and I did one last week in the uh, in South Woodford, um, east at the east end of the Central Line, mm. and. Um, uh, I know, I, you know, the teacher there was sort of telling me that there's a little bit of a kind of expectation that stuff will be kind of easy and it will come to you and there wasn't much sense you might get too much kind of rejection. Uh, and I think he was kind of, I think, you know, that was to some degree coming from television and celebrity culture and all that kind of stuff that's mm-hmm. seeping young minds. Um, so... Um, you know, uh, I, I guess you don't want that kind of complacency because it isn't particularly easy um, and you do have to work hard to kind of bolt together a, a viable career in this area quite often. Mm-hmm. But um, most of the people I've met kind of get that. So, And these were quite young kids. They were only year nine. So, um, okay. Kind of <laughs> things, some of those things. Brilliant. So I see just as we start to round up, I see a, a lot of books in the background. They're just like uh, uh, in my son's room upstairs. It's the son's room slash office. He's back from uni. Um, what's your, have you got a favourite in there? Have you got a, a, a um, there? Well, the, the, the nearest shelf to us is the shelf of honour. So um, there's a, a select number of books, you know, that are on there. My favourite is... Um, is Ulysses, James Joyce. So the, the Shelf of Honours actually got quite a number of copies of that there. Wow, okay. Um, which has a sort of reputation as a difficult book, but it, it kind of, it's not really as difficult as its reputation um, uh, makes it seem, because you have to sort of let it flow over you a bit and then, then you can kind of um, get through it easily. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of a book that's about everything. And, um, you know, there's not a subject you can think of that, that isn't in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's i guess i've never thought of it in i've never made the connection before but it is sort of a bit of a mentory um t- talent nurturing sort of a book because you've got an older uh an older man um in the form of leopold bloom um who's a jewish dubliner um crossing paths with uh, a kind of unsettled um trying to sort his head out younger guy uh, and eventually they um they they do meet up and there's something of that kind of relationship between them which i think is one of the things that i really like mm. and my favorite scene of it is once they have met up um they end up going back to bloom's house for a for a, a coffee or tea or whatever um, and they go out back because they've kind of been on the lash and they go and have a piss against the back wall and they're kind of looking at the night sky um, whilst relieving themselves. And I don't know, something about that <laughs> whole thing sort of is the perfect moment in the book, really. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can picture it now. Yeah. Uh, the, the steam rising. Yeah, and, and, the, and the stars <laughs> above. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, I really like reading, and um, that's kind of one of my ways of uh, counterbalancing all this stuff. Really, is actually just go out the back garden there with a book um, and, and chill out and transport myself. So they do play a big role in my life, and it's one of the 
it's kind of my one of my last digital frontiers. Like I'm not going to um, I'm not going to be dumping paper and cardboard um, anytime. Uh, you know, I, I can see the merits of Kindles and so forth, but uh, not for me. I think both you and I are probably um, probably worth some shares in Amazon. Um, because there's nothing, nothing better than Amazon. I just love it. <laughs> Receiving a book in, from Amazon is just brilliant. You know? It is. Although it comes with a little kind of nagging guilt at the back of your mind as well. In terms of, yeah, spending money and space as well, decreasing space. Um, I was thinking more about tax. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what, what's your um, what's the favourite scene in a film or movie? And I'll tell you mine, it is the opening scene of Raging Bull. Um, where, you know, the, the slow motion, the, yeah, the yeah. camera bolt flashing. It's just, I just can't even. Yeah, I, I mean, my immediately, um, oh, yeah. No, I, I, I suppose I was going to go for sort of, I really like um, Coppola's films, which are sort of uh, not far distant from what you're talking about. Mm. Um, but actually, when I think about it, my, my favourite scene uh, is probably the end of City Lights, Charlie Chaplin. I'm a big Charlie Chaplin fan. Ah. So, um, yeah, when the, um, when the blind girl realises he's, he's the millionaire, the tramp is the millionaire. Sorry, I just ruined that for people that haven't seen it, but it has been. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, but it's, um, it, it, yeah, that's, that's kind of probably my favourite film. And uh, I'm, I'm that committed to it that my... My um, younger son, is, his middle name is Charlie, after Charlie. And one of the things that really got me into Charlie Chaplin was actually his kind of commitment and immense kind of hard work and dedication that he demonstrated. So, you know, when I was reading biographies and stuff of him about how he sort of disappeared into the cutting room for weeks on end, I sort of thought, you know, well, there's, there's, there's something super admirable there. Yeah, I'm um, uh, a <laughs> massive Lauren and Hardy fan. So that, that, that took up, I mean, I watched a bit of Charlie Chaplin, a bit of Keaton, but Lorna Hardy is just, for me, just absolute genius. And uh, the, the movie, I, I don't know if you saw the movie um, um, with Steve Coogan in it, it was, yeah. it was brilliant, really, really good. Yeah, no, I thought it was really well done. I thought Steve Coogan was particularly good. Yeah, really good. I, just... My favourite film with him in is 24 Hour Party People, which brings us back to the T-shirt. <laughs> Yes, so you were a perfect me. closing of the yeah, circle. Exactly, you were telling me before about uh, I was I was notioning the Joy Division, and I was saying how I watched the New Order uh, document docu movie or documentary on uh, was it on Sky Arts? I was watching it last night. Yeah, with my Sky wife. Arts directed by a guy called Mike Christie that I work with quite a lot on Channel Four. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a really great film that one. Yeah, really good. So, uh, yeah, um, any parting bits of advice for, for our audience or audiences um, um, of uh, making that next step or being inspired to professionalise what they do? I think, um, well, a couple of things really, very concisely though. One is um, it's normal to kind of oscillate between uh, sort of self-belief and then thinking you're the largest fraud in the universe and back again in two minutes flat. You know, that happens to everyone, um, regardless of how experienced or how long they've been in the business. So um, try, you know, just trying to have belief in yourself um, is, um, is really important. Mm. And then um, 
the other thing I would say is the sort of great art, I think, of, uh, you know, of TV and filmmaking and, and all kind of communications and media is just having a really finely honed sensibility or ability to see things from the audiences or the viewers or the user's point of view. Um, it's kind of simple and it's sort of easy to, to say, but actually there are not that many people that are um, really, really good at that. So just always being able to have that um, sense of how this looks and how this plays out and how this reads and how this sounds to the audience is, um, is really important. Fantastic. Fantastic. So Adam G, thanks for your time. Thanks for agreeing to be interviewed by Right Brain Stories or Larry oh, Anderson. And, um, Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. So uh, yeah, I'm going to go and get some chips and I've got to walk the dog. So uh, uh, she's, she's, she's crying at the moment. But I can hear. Enjoy and um, <laughs> catch up with you. Yeah. Uh, thanks very Take much. Care. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Bye. Bye. <laughs>